Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, to my bed crimers. Hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Do me a favor, if after watching the video you find you enjoyed it or you learned something, smash that like button and please consider subscribing. And if you want to support the work I do, please consider a membership. I keep the price really low, $1.99 a month. Hey, that's much less than even one drink from Starbucks. Now, without further ado, let's dig in. The two hitmen in the Dan Markel case, Zigfredo Garcia and Luis Rivera, were best friends. Whether they still are is doubtful since Rivera took a plea deal, pretty much ensuring that Garcia went to prison for life. Both of the men have nicknames, Rivera's is Tato and Garcia's is Tuto. In this video, I want to give you an idea of what led the two to lives of crime and to the point where they would agree to participate in a murder-for-hire plot. The Latin Kings street gang came into existence in 1954 when a guy from Chicago named Ramon Santos formed the Imperials, which later morphed into the Latin Kings. It was and remains the largest Hispanic criminal gang in the United States. Its greatest concentrations are in big cities like Miami, Chicago, and New York, and it deals primarily in the distribution of narcotics. The organization is divided into local tribes, but each tribe has five leaders. Why five, you might ask? Well, the five leaders symbolize the five points of a king's crown. Think of King Charles. The top dog is called the first crown or primero, and the primero reports to regional officers. Regional officers report to state officers, who in turn report to national officers. It almost sounds like the Rotary. To be a Latin king, you have to agree to follow what's called the King Manifesto. Members also have to pay dues and attend meetings. Within the organization, the most valued quality is loyalty. If a Latin king snitches on another Latin king, the crime is punishable by death. You can become a member by one of two ways. You can earn your membership by proving yourself through drug trafficking and robbery. Do these well and you can become a member. The other way is by being born into it. If a Latin King member has been promoted to the status of King, then their child becomes a member and receives a king name. Luis Rivera became a member of the Latin kings by birth. His uncles, Juan and Sammy Rivera, were both Latin kings when Luis was born in Puerto Rico in 1983. In this way, Luis became what's called a legacy member of the Latin kings, and his godmother gave him the nickname Tato. So Luis's Latin king name became King Tato. When he was just a wee toddler, his parents moved him along with his five siblings to North Miami Beach. The neighborhood in North Miami Beach was a primarily Hispanic one. Most of the families were also poor, and many were lacking at least one parent. Louis became a working Latin king when he was just 10 years old. Unfortunately, by that age, 
he'd already been diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. You heard that right. Luis Rivera has deep-seated mental health problems. His first arrest came at the age of 13, and it was for shooting a neighborhood kid in the head with a BB gun. Now, I had a BB gun as a child, which I loved. The only thing I shot at were tree trunks. A little different than shooting somebody in the head. It wasn't long before Lewis was in juvie or a juvenile detention center. He would ping pong between reform schools and public schools for much of his life, which led to him falling behind in his studies. For this reason, Lewis never made it past a third grade reading level, although he did attend high school. So it sounds like the teachers passed him along, despite him not mastering reading. One day when he was in 10th grade, he decided to skip school. Now at this point, he was both using and selling illicit drugs. On this day, a police SWAT team descended on the Rivera home, and Lewis was arrested and jailed. The arrest also led to him being expelled from high school. By the age of 14, Lewis was dating a 20-year-old woman named Leona Annie Diaz. Diaz had a 5-year-old son named Anthony. Lewis moved in with Annie and Anthony when Annie became pregnant with his child. Now, when he was 15, Lewis became a primero of the North Miami Latin Kings tribe. He might not have been able to read beyond the third grade level, but he was certainly moving up in the gang. By 19, the five-foot, four-inch-tall Rivera had fathered two daughters, Caritza and Keishia, with Diaz. He was also acting as a father to little Anthony. And it's no coincidence that his daughters' names begin with K. That was in homage to the Latin kings and also to his own name, King Tato. Although Rivera was consistently engaging in criminal activities, he did have something of a moral compass when it came to being a father. In honor of his children, he had each of their names tattooed on his body, including Anthony's name. Lewis also spent some bucks getting some other tattoos, including a giant crown just above his belly button, the word king, and this is kind of funny, he had the four members of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tattooed on his lower legs. On his fingers, he had the word king spelled on the right hand and the word love on the left. Clearly, Rivera has a sentimental side. Unfortunately for the women in his life, Lewis didn't have the same moral compass, and he was often unfaithful. When he went out partying with his buddies, he tended to hook up with other women. And despite his short stature, he was something of a ladies' man. At age 17, Lewis got a job working for Coastal Masonry, and he soon established himself as a dedicated and reliable worker. Not only was he often the first employee to show up at work, he was always the last one to leave, and it wasn't long before he was certified to operate heavy machinery. By his 20s, he was promoted to foreman. Along with his new title came things like health insurance and a 401k plan, 
Lewis was actually turning into a success story, and he actually clocked in 15 years at the masonry company. But for all the adulting he was doing at a young age, Lewis was still playing gangster on the side. At age 18, he was charged with committing aggravated assault against a police officer, as well as drug trafficking. After being released from jail for all of that, he had a few years without any trouble with the law. But then, in 2008, Annie Diaz, his baby mama, accused him of DV, which landed him in the Huskow for 30 days. He was next charged and convicted on drug and weapons violations, but somehow Lewis managed to avoid prison. Instead, he got probation. In 2010, Lewis met a young woman named Jessica Rodriguez, She'd just been released from prison, where she'd served five years for two separate armed robberies, a match made in heaven. From this point on, Lewis couch-surfed between Jessica's house, Annie Diaz's residence, and his younger sister's home. By 2013, Lewis moved in full-time with Jessica Rodriguez. At this point, Lewis took responsibility for Jessica's daughter, Sienna. The only problem was that Jessica didn't get along with Lewis's family, particularly with his mother. See, Lewis's mom preferred Annie Diaz over Jessica. In 2014, Jessica gave birth to Lewis's daughter, a baby girl named Khaleesi, who he called Lulu. Lulu was born with a small hole in her heart, but over time it healed. Moving on to how Lewis met Zigfredo Garcia. So Lewis met up with Zigfredo Garcia in elementary school. The two boys lived in the same neighborhood. Although Zigfredo was a year older than Lewis, it didn't stop them from becoming like brothers. And like Lewis, Zigfredo had a nickname. His was Tuto. And thus was born the duo Tato and Tuto. Zigfredo's parents, Susanna and Zigfredo Sr., had come to the U.S. from Cuba before they had children. They had their five children in the U.S. Sigfredo was the baby. So I'm going to call him Sigfredo Jr. One of Sigfredo's earliest memories is from age five, and that's when his father was released from prison. Sadly, Sigfredo's father was in and out of prison during most of Sigfredo Jr.'s young life. To take care of the family, Sigfredo's mother worked multiple jobs. Despite working nearly the entire day, she was a very strict parent. If Sigfredo got out of line, his mother would throw a sandal at him. Nine times out of ten, she would hit her mark. Sigfredo Sr. was apparently a very handsome man, and Latino women found him irresistible. Even when he was watching the kids while Susanna worked, Sigfredo Sr. would woo women, and he would tell his kids to keep it on the down low from their mother. So Sigfredo Jr. grew up maybe thinking this stuff was normal. Sigfredo Sr. also enjoyed dabbling with white powder that he would put up his nose, if you know what I mean, and he would do it in front of his kids, so he wasn't a great role model. The younger Sigfredo had his first snort age 10 when he stole some powder from his dad. Sigfredo Sr. also taught his son 
how to break into cars. But Sigfredo's father dropped out of his life suddenly when Junior was 11. Sigfredo Sr. fled to Mexico to avoid being prosecuted for more drug crimes. He left so quickly that he didn't even say goodbye. As a child, Tuto was hyperactive. He was also a mixture between daring and terrified. He also displayed uncontrollable irritability from time to time. I could probably be accused of that from time to time myself. Now, he was first arrested at age six. Unbelievable. By 12, he was setting buildings on fire. He was also smoking pot and drinking booze on a regular basis at home with his siblings while their mother was away working. So when the mama cat was away, the baby kittens would play. By seventh grade, Siegfriedo was put in a 28-day drug treatment program and reform school. At age 16, he got into working out, lifting weights, turned him from a scrawny to a chiseled young man. At some point, he ended up back in school at the Miami Beach Senior High. He was the type to cut classes, and he enjoyed hanging out more with his buddy, Tato. To support his drug habit, he began selling drugs, but Siegfredo joined a gang called the Latin Syndicate instead of the Latin Kings. By age 15, Tuto was getting into more scrapes with the law. He also suffered from severe social anxiety. Despite that, he managed to fall in love with a girl in the neighborhood. Her name was Elizabeth, and at age 16, Sigfredo moved into her family's home. But at 17, everything changed when he was charged as an adult for breaking into a car. He spent six months in jail, and this ended his relationship as well as his formal education. At age 20, Sigfredo was convicted again, this time for selling narcotics and amphetamines and for intimidating a witness. Age 21, Tuto found himself smitten with another woman, Catherine Diana McBanawa, who lived in his neighborhood. She was three years younger than him and not a Latina. Katie was from the Philippines. She came to the U.S. with her parents and her two brothers in 1993. Katie and Siegfredo started dating in 2003, right after she graduated from high school. Katie, at 18, had long black hair, olive skin, and a perfect smile. In many ways, she was Siegfriedo's opposite. Katie had never been in trouble with the law. She was smart. She stayed away from drugs. And when she attended Miami-Dade Community College, she and Siegfriedo moved into an apartment together. But living with Siegfriedo was something of a shock because she discovered that he hadn't changed his stripes. He was soon arrested on a misdemeanor for possession of marijuana and for driving without a license. Katie ended up kicking him out. And in August of 2005, she moved to Orlando to complete her degree at the University of Central Florida. She majored in Health Services Administration. Tuto then ended up moving in with a friend who was raising his two younger brothers, ages 14 and 16, as if they were his own sons. Tuto helped that friend parent the boys. In December of 2005, the two teenage boys were on a bus heading home from school. A short man with a scary smile was staring at them on the bus. 
and when the boys got off the bus, so did this short guy. He began following the young boys, and when he caught up to them, he told them that they could make big bucks posing without their clothing on the internet. This freaked the two teenagers out, and they ended up running home. Once there, they told Siegfredo and their brother what had happened. So Siegfredo and his buddy took off in the direction of the short man. They were going to teach him a lesson with their fists. They soon found the guy, but unfortunately, he was armed. Before Siegfredo and his buddy could grab the short guy, the short guy pulled out a weapon. Siegfredo ended up with wounds to his lung and liver. His friend was also severely injured, and both of them were expected to die. Miraculously, they both survived. Now, when Katie heard about Siegfredo's injuries, she agreed to let him move in with her in Orlando, and then she helped him heal, and soon their romance was back on track. By the end of her junior year, Katie was expecting. Little Ethan Garcia was born in December of 2006. Siegfredo and Katie began calling each other husband and wife, although they never were married. Garcia stayed out of trouble while in Orlando. He did some training in masonry, and he got a job in construction. When Katie graduated in 2007, she, Siegfredo, and their son Ethan moved back to South Florida, and they moved in with Katie's mother, Cecilia, who was a nurse. In 2009, Siegfredo got a job at the same company where Luis Rivero was working. However, the job didn't last very long. When Louis saw Siegfredo drinking booze on the job, Louis reported him. Louis seems to always be tattling on Garcia. By then, Siegfredo was operating heavy machinery, and Louis, as the foreman, had to do the right thing for the company. So Siegfredo lost his job, then he started having back problems. All of that put a strain on the relationship. Siegfredo began hitting the booze and drugs more and more. Katie started yelling at Siegfredo for not contributing financially, not helping around the house. She also started looking in his phone to see if he was possibly cheating. And when she got really angry with him, she would not stop herself from striking him. The interesting thing is that Siegfredo never laid a hand on Katie. Siegfredo was very timid around around Katie. Katie really became the person in the relationship who wore the pants. She even got a tattoo of a bumblebee, and she would say, I love to effing sting people, end quote. Despite their problems, the couple had a second child in 2012, a daughter named Kaylee. Kaylee led to her parents having another blissful period in their often tumultuous relationship, Siegfredo loved being a dad and spending time with his kiddos. He would never drink or do drugs around them. Katie was equally determined to keep her kids away from criminal behavior, but Siegfredo was always pulled back into a life of crime. In October of 2012, he and an older friend jumped a 67-year-old man who was fishing on a pier. They put the man in a chokehold, threw him to the pavement, and stole his money. Victim ended up calling the police, and he was able to identify Garcia in a police lineup. When the cops turned up at Katie and Siegfredo's apartment, the apartment she shared with her mother, Garcia got very belligerent. He went outside, and he was yelling, I'm not going to go to jail for some sh 
I didn't do. When he refused to drop to the ground, the officers wrestled him down. Garcia was kicking and punching. Finally, the police were able to put handcuffs on him, and soon Garcia was on his way to the Miami-Dade County Jail. Katie posted bail for him, and he was released the next day. But she was getting tired of his behavior. Garcia then managed to get another job at the masonry company again, but once again he was laid off in August of 2013. And at that point, his drug and alcohol use began to escalate once again. And when Luis Rivera needed help on his repeated robberies of drug dealers... Garcia always tagged along and helped him. So although Luis Rivera had a job as a foreman, he continued to do these robberies. He targeted drug dealers because they tended to not call the police. Now back to Katie. One time when her phone rang and it was actually a butt dial from Garcia's phone, she could hear the conversation and unbeknownst to Zigfredo, Katie heard him say, that he was having intimate moments, shall we say, with another woman. Katie was so upset, so ticked off, so tired of him, that she tossed all of his stuff out the front door and said, that's it, we're done. Zigfredo left, but he wanted Katie right back. Even though he cheated on her, Katie was the only woman he said he ever loved. Katie then got a job as a receptionist at SoFi Dental Care and Orthodontics in South Beach, and one day in October of 2013, the handsome and muscular Charlie Adelson, a traveling periodontist, came walking in the door. Katie noticed Charlie, Charlie noticed Katie, and soon they were having their first date on October 10th of 2013. It was only a few weeks later on Halloween that Charlie would ask Katie if she knew anyone who could harm somebody. And with that, Dan Markell's life would be forever changed. I'm going to end this video with snippets from a letter that Zigfredo Garcia, aka Tuto, wrote to Katie McBanawa after he was convicted for Markell's death. The letter was described in the Tallahassee Democrat in an article published on October 17th of 2019. So I'll be quoting from the article. Here goes. I plan on fighting this with every breath I have, Garcia wrote in his note. I'm going to start with my direct appeal and continue exhausting every appeal in the book until they get so tired of seeing me, they'll give up and free me. Now, Garcia had not yet faced sentencing when he wrote the letter, and he knew that he could potentially get the death penalty. He then writes, By the time you get this, we'll know where I stand. A jury of ten women and two men opted to spare his life, and they sentenced him instead to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In the note, Garcia pleads with McBanawa not to give up on him and assures her that after a mistrial in her case, she now knows how prosecutors plan to try and convict her. He wrote, You have a couple of good things to look forward to in your pursuit of justice. I will not be sitting next to you with all my bad juju. Your attorneys will be better equipped to defend you now that they've seen all the sucker punches 
and manipulations the other side got away with. Garcia's letter to Katie also recalled what she was wearing on the day they met. He told her she was the best thing to ever happen to him, and he encouraged her to keep her head up throughout her ongoing defense. He pleaded for her to not give up on him. He wrote, I need you more than ever. We both have a difficult road ahead of us. Just know that you'll always have me, no matter where I stand. Remember how I stand, with my chest out and my head high, and I expect nothing less from you. Please stay in touch. End quote. I'll leave it there for today. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories.